0: So what if you were 38 and still attending kindergarten? Now, you might go, Doug, that's ludicrous. That would never happen. Well, maybe not You know, physically we would do that, and maybe not intellectually and academically we would do it. But have you ever thought that maybe emotionally we do that sometimes? We're in a series called Life Rhythms, and we're looking at synchronized living in an offbeat world, and one of the areas that we're actually talking about is emotionally mature love. And when we laugh at something as humorous as this, the connection I want to bring you back to is, have you ever noticed that some people are maybe 25 years old, and they have this capacity to express emotional love, and it's very well presented and very mature, and yet you can meet people who are 50, 60, 65, 70, and they have a very immature expression of emotional love. So why is that? Well, what's taking place here? Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this whole area of loving well. If you're visiting for the first time and if you're joining us online or in the chapel in the Video Café, welcome. Good to have you here. In this series, we're focusing on how we can grow into emotionally healthy spiritual adults and live our lives the way that God created us to and actually experience the kind of life that God calls us to. And if you're new to faith or investigating faith, you're in a safe place. You can raise questions. You can ask. You can walk with us. We want you to be here. We welcome you. And it's so good to have you here this morning. But I'm also going to take those of you who are Christ followers and I'm a part of that community and we're going to actually look at this topic and go how are we doing? And maybe that's the good question to ask is, when it comes to our emotional lives, are we connecting well? Are we demonstrating emotionally mature love? Now, our default reaction might be, sure I am. And together, what we're going to do is have a look at what keeps us from doing this, and how do we get better at it? So to get ready for this, I want you to take out your Bibles. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13, and if you need a Bible this morning, whatever venue you're in, raise your hand real quick, and in the main room here, we got people coming through, and our ushers are going to get a Bible to you. You can use this, leave it on the chair. If you want to go electronically, you can go out to uversion.com, look up live events, Mississauga, you'll find Portico. You can actually not only read the text, but take notes with us that way as well. And of course, you've got the tactile version, pull out your bulletins, and we have an outline. I'd really, really encourage you today, if you're not in the habit of taking notes, please take some notes today, come and join us at our large group experience on Wednesday night, or get into one of our small groups, because this is a topic I guarantee you're going to have some lively discussion around, we're going to learn together. So when it comes to this emotional maturity and demonstrating emotionally mature love, what is it? that keeps us from actually growing in and expressing this love. Well, I think there's a number of reasons. I think actually there's a number of myths that people have embraced. And so I'm going to share these with you. They're not specifically in your notes, but you might want to write them down because these would be great conversation points to have. But I believe some people, the reason they don't have a mature expression of love is this false understanding that emotional love is a natural consequence of life. So just like our growing physiologically and physically in life, where we go from infant to childhood to adolescence to adulthood, there are people that look at their emotional capacity in life and they go, well, as I age, I will become emotionally more mature. But the reality is, if you actually look at our physical structure in life, infants don't have capacity to express to adults what they need. So what do they do? They cry. They make a noise, they, you know, you're frustrated, and they get the attention of their parents. And children don't have the capacity to communicate clearly, so we teach them skills so that they can communicate with an adult, adolescence all the way up to adulthood. There is an intentional development pathway for us to mature. And yet when it comes to our emotional capacity to love, we often don't give time to the development that it needs because there's this myth that, well, as I get older... I'm going to be emotionally more mature. And so you find this. But this is why in my world, particularly as a pastor and a counselor and leading people, I'll often meet people, and I can meet a 25-year-old, and I'll be just amazed at how balanced and mature and expressive they are, and they can express ideas and opinions. They can respect the opinions of others. There's no bullying, no intimidation. Then I can meet somebody who is very mature. Have you ever met a stodgy, difficult old person? Don't raise your hand if you're married to that person right now. But we meet people who later on who should have graduated from emotional kindergarten and it seems like they're just not there. And one of the reasons is because they assume it's a natural growth that just like physiological, physical development, they're just going to naturally... But it doesn't work that way. It takes the same kind of intentionality. Here's a second myth. And this one I want to speak now to those of you who are followers of Christ, myself included. There are sometimes that in our lives we believe that when we come to Christ that the Bible says that old things are gone, all things become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I'll put it on the screen so you can see it here. It says, here we are. So therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. So we go, well, that's great. God just takes us in like a, a whiteboard. He just erases everything and he goes, there you are. Start all over again, it's brand new. And so we, we treat our emotional maturity the same way. And we go, well, when I came to Christ, he made everything new. Therefore, my emotional capacity to love is new, and I must be okay. God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new spirit, and he gives us his Holy Spirit, which gives us capacity to love. But capacity doesn't represent maturity. Are you following so he gives us the ability and capacity to love, but we have to learn how to develop and to grow in that love. And so there, I've heard people quote this verse. You go, no, 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 I'm okay. I'm new in Christ. Everything is matured and new in me. I'm good to go. And I go, no, we need to learn. And the Bible even says, you know, like babes who crave milk, you know, newborn infants, spiritual infants need to do the same thing. We need to learn how to grow together. And then there's a third myth. And, you know, you can wrestle these down when you get into your small groups. Just talk them out a little bit. But there's this third myth, and we look at it in this context here. There are those who believe that as a Christian, their ability to love is qualitatively different from people who are not Christ followers. So they look at the Scriptures, and they look at what God has done for us, and it is amazing. Really, it is, if you're new to faith. What God has done for us in demonstrating His love and His grace and His forgiveness, and He gives it to us as a gift. We don't work for it. He just gives it to us. So there is this wonderful gift of grace that comes into our world, But there are those who believe that qualitatively now, my love is different from others around us. And they'll look at something like John 13, 35, where Jesus would say to his disciples, they will know you are my disciples by your love. And they'll quote that. You know, it's kind of that kumbaya, let's join hands. And they all go, oh, there's a really different group of people. But statistically, here's what I know. Statistically, it's been proven, research has shown this out, that those who claim to follow Christ when it comes to our morality, our ethics, our values, our virtues, we have a marginal, not a substantial, we have a marginal difference between those who are not expressive of faith and following Christ. So we struggle in the same area when it comes to the areas of divorce and abuse and violence and all the different things that ruin relationships. In other words, all the things that demonstrate emotional immaturity mark our lives as clearly as it marks other lives. Why is that? It's because we bought into this myth that because I am a Christian that somehow qualitatively, and I go back to this, the Holy Spirit gives capacity and empowerment, but we have to learn how to grow. Now, Paul, this is very interesting. Paul is somebody who picks up under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if again, if you're new to the Bible, over in the New Testament, the New Testament where these letters are written to groups of believers, we call them churches, Paul wrote a letter to a group of believers believers in the city of Corinth. So the letters are called 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And what this is, it's instruction to these believers on how to live their lives and how to grow and how to serve one another and what God has done for them. It's great reading. But in these letters, he begins to instruct these believers. And Paul discovered something, that even though we know that we are to be emotionally mature in our love, and that loving well is a core indicator that we are growing with emotional, uh, spiritual vitality, he found a group of people that were really struggling. So he writes to these people in Corinth in his first letter, 1 Corinthians. He actually shows some very immature examples of emotional love. And we don't have time to read it today. I would encourage you if you get a chance to go back and look at it. But if you get into Corinthians, here's what you read. When you open up the first couple of chapters, Paul writes to them and he goes, what is this I'm hearing? I hear that some of you say, well, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and I'm of Jesus. What they were saying is this was a group of people who were choosing their personal preference for their, their pastor. Some were saying, like, I like Paul. No, 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 I like Apollos. No, no, I like Jesus. Well, I like Cephas. And what they were doing is expressing personal preference, but not merely that they had personal preference, but they were using it over someone else. In other words, they are going, you're wrong, I'm right. Can you imagine that? That would be like in church. You're going, well, I like Pastor Duck." No, no, I don't like him. I like Pastor Jeff. No, no, I like Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick's the best pastor. And then we all agree, Pastor Amitabh is the most amazing pastor we have on staff, Right? All right, give him a big hand. He is an incredible guy. It's good to have us with us here. But Paul writes to these believers. He goes, do you see how immature you are in the way you're expressing your love? So now you've got these divisions that are coming into your body because you're using your personal preference. You're using who you prefer as a tool or a weapon or a leverage against another individual in the body. And he goes, that's so immature. You can't do this. And so Paul has to write, and he says, you've got to grow out of this. Move into the letter a little bit deeper, and you start to find that these are the same believers who start to express spiritual elitism. Well, what was that? Well, God filled them with their spirit." Some of them had capacity to express their spiritual gifts. So those that had the vocal gifts, they had tongues and prophecy and interpretation. They were walking around, shoulders pushed back in the church. They go, hey, check it out. God's really using me. And they were using that as if they had some superiority over others who had gifts of serving, administration, and leadership. And Paul goes, no, don't you understand that that's emotional immaturity? That just because you have a public gift that others can see, it is no greater than a gift that's private or maybe a little more obscure. So let me make this practical this morning. I want to make sure we all get this. The fact that my gift enables me and God can use me to stand and speak and communicate and prepare a message and deliver a message to be a pastor, teacher, equipper, doesn't make my gift any better than your gift that God has given you, right? Wow. Wow. All right, 101 in the church. This is Interactive Church, by the way. You do believe this, right? That my gift is no greater than your gifts. I want to make sure we understand this as a church, that we don't start putting people up on pedestals and go, wow, that's just incredible. Your gift, whether it's administration or serving or leading, whatever capacity God has given to you, is as equal to my gift in terms of its service into the kingdom of God. And Paul says, whether the gift is public or whether the gift is private, whatever your gift is, God uses it all. We're all part of his body. And no part of the body is greater than any other part of the body. And he goes, emotionally immature love is when we start to identify ourselves with elitism or arrogance. And he goes, what's wrong with you guys? So he has to write into this. It got so destructive and so um, disruptive to the body that there was one moment that Paul actually, he just calls this out. So, they would get together and they would celebrate what is called the breaking of bread. We would refer to it today as communion or the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. So, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, celebrated the Passover, broke bread, shared the cup, and left instructions for his disciples. In fact, Paul would actually tell the church about this in Corinthians. And he'd go, The Lord revealed to me what I passed on to you. On the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he broke the bread. He took the bread and he broke it and shared it. And he writes to them, He goes, What are you doing? Like, what are you doing? You get together at the Lord's table, and you get into cliques, and some of you have a feast. You're enjoying food together, and your group is well fed, and then you've got others who have nothing, and you're not including them in the mix. And he goes, and you're leaving them out. He goes, stay at home if you're going to do that. Don't come and be a part of the body when you get together. And so he describes very clearly, and in fact, many of you have read this verse, and it's there in your notes, referenced into your notes, but Paul actually says in Corinthians, he goes, Let a man and let a woman examine themselves before they come to the Lord's table. What was Paul talking about? He goes, make sure that the love that you're expressing vertically towards God is represented by the love you're expressing horizontally towards your brothers and sisters. That you don't have this incongruent relationship with others when you're saying, God, we're okay this way. And he goes, it's all together. An emotionally mature love has to be expressed appropriately. All right, we tracking so far? So here's this incredible letter that Paul is writing to, and and maybe for the first time you're going to read Corinthians in a different light now, because you'll open it up and you go, whoa, there are people just like us. There are people who have people in emotional kindergarten, emotional childhood, emotional adolescence, and emotional adulthood. But we still come back to the big question and our goal. If our goal is loving well, then how do we grow in emotional love? How do we grow up into this? And it... It does take some work. So I had you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for a reason. Now, many of you, quick show of hands. How many of you have ever been to a wedding? If you're married, I expect to see your hands. All right. If you've been to a wedding, this is a text that is often read, 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, it should go on a Hallmark card. I think they did. It's the love chapter, right? And it just talks about love is, and it's got this beautiful sort of poetic flow to it. And we read 1 Corinthians 13, particularly 4 to 8, and we read it, and immediately what do we do? We go, well, that's nice. You know, we'll write that on a piece of paper and give it to a brand new couple that's getting married. That's not why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul. When the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, remember what he was dealing with. Paul's dealing with divisions, arrogance, elitism, personal preference issues, and he's going... You're emotionally immature in your expression of love. And it's undermining your spiritual growth. So what I need to do is help you grow. I want to take you from emotional childhood or infancy. I want to grow you up into emotionally vibrant adults. So we're going to look at the text. We're going to read it a little bit differently. So if your Bibles are open or you've got your uh, iOS devices open this morning, 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to read it verse 4. Now let's read it with a fresh set of eyes. Think about emotionally mature love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Paul wasn't standing before a couple, a man and a woman getting married and going, let me read a love chapter to you. Paul was writing a letter to a group of people trying to grow them in the faith and going, lay down your personal preferences, lay down your antagonism, lay down your elitism and understand this is what love is. In fact, this is a great litmus test for emotional maturity. And one of the ways we can do that is really just take the words here. There's 16 attributes that are described in this little section. And if you were to take the word love out and substitute your name in, how would you rate when it comes to emotional mature love? Well, for instance, so I'll put my name in. And if Laura was to score me or our staff was to score me, and I put my name in and it said, Doug is patient. And anybody on staff, don't speak up right now. Doug is kind. Doug does not envy. Doug does not boast. Doug is not proud. You go through. All of a sudden, you see how personal this becomes? This text, now don't miss this. This text can transform your relationships if you allow the Holy Spirit to use it. I said this earlier. God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new spirit. He gives us capacity to live emotionally mature lives. But we have to partner with the Holy Spirit and say, I'm going to do this. And so it it goes on and says, you know, Doug is, or I am, I am patient, I am kind, I do not envy, I do not boast. So what I want to do is, we can't possibly do all 16, because you know I can barely get through three, but I'm going to try four. And we're going to look at four key attributes of what I think emotional and mature love looks like. So get your notes out, let's take them, and we're going to dive right in. Here's the first one I want to talk about. Emotionally mature love always protects. It always protects See, Paul's speaking to something about human nature that our default reaction is self-preservation. We want to guard or protect our interests or ourselves, particularly in relationship with other people. That when we get into an awkward situation or a difficult relationship, our initial reaction to challenge is to protect ourselves. We put up the walls, we put up the guards. Let me demonstrate for you. Just think of it in this context. When we're working on a project and we answer to supervisor, or to a peer group, and it's our responsibility to deliver the project on time, but there's all these delays and it's not getting through and it just doesn't seem to come through on time. How do we handle that when our supervisors ask us and question us about our deliverables? Do we admit, uh, immediately admit, listen, I need to own this and we're not really getting there? Or do we tend to look to shift the blame towards others? Well, you know the people that I'm working with on the project, they didn't get their stuff to me on time. Or, you know, the vendor that was supposed to provide this for us, the vendor didn't deliver. And we always have this You ever notice that? We have an ability to blame other people. Here's what we call it. We talk about throwing people under the... We've all been there, haven't we? That's why we know that statement. In fact, there's a moment in your life that you can go back to where you go, ouch, who just ran over me? And if you're new to that statement, throwing people under the bus, what that literally is, is when somebody else doesn't want to take the blame, they throw you into the blame bucket. And people drive over you. And yet, Paul would tell us here that if we look at emotionally mature love, that emotionally mature love always protects. That we don't try to raise the guards. We don't try to throw people underneath the bus. This is constantly an issue that's at play in our relationships. We have this inner need to be liked. So we, on Facebook, we want everybody to like us and like our posts. And if they don't, we make mental note. I'm never going to like theirs, right? We have this inner need to be right, and we will argue vehemently until that place. But these needs can overpower the importance of being emotionally mature. And so we'll default towards our self-preservation and our protection at the expense of our emotional maturity, and we sacrifice the very gift that God gave us, which gives us a quality of life that is unequal to anything else. So Paul writes this in the Bible, Philippians 2, it's in your notes, verse 3. He goes, So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of who? Others. Wow. He goes, If you really understood this, that your relationships, the quality of relationships, the dynamic that you really want to have in life, he goes, When you understand it, you can lay down your ego, you can lay down your rights, you can lay down your pride. When you do that, you will actually gain everything that you desire in relationships. So practically, what does this mean when we all put it together? It means that love always protects. So I'm going to ask you a question. Do people feel safe around you? Think about this. Do people feel safe around you? Does your spouse feel safe around you? Do your children feel safe Do your family, do your friends? What about your relatives or your co-workers? So drill down just a little bit more. Do people feel emotionally safe around you? Do they feel confident that you're not going to use sarcasm and demeaning words and actions of intimidation that are going to belittle them? Do they feel physically safe around you? That you won't use your your stature, your position, your power to intimidate, to bully, or to threaten? Do they feel intellectually safe around you? That whether your IQ scores higher than their IQ or not, that their ideas and their thoughts and their expressions won't be dismissed or demeaned or just dropped because you're somehow superior? Or do they feel sexually safe around you? That you're a person who knows how to honor men and women and how to respect and offer dignity And you never exercise abuse and violence and control in those relationships, but you respect that all people are made in the image of God and worthy of the dignity that he calls us to. See, the Bible says that love always protects, that we'll always do this. So much so that the Bible would instruct husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. There's an understanding here that men give leadership leadership to their home, and if a husband loves his wife, as Christ loved the church, well, what kind of love is that? Christ would lay his life down. There is this fierce loyalty and protection. I'll do whatever to take care of my spouse. So we find this in First John 3:16. It says, "This is how we know what love is. See, see the teaching in that? This is how we know. This is what we're learning. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That if God teaches us how to love, that he was willing to lay his life down. Now, he's not saying that you have to go out and take a bullet for somebody. But practically what he's saying, I'm willing to lay down my own ambitions. I'm willing to set aside my personal preferences. I'm willing to step back into the shadows if it means you will look a little bit better here. That's emotionally mature love. I don't always need to be right. I don't always need to come out first. I don't always need to shift. The blame. Now I'm going to give you a courageous question. You can write it down, or you don't have to. I'm going to give you a courageous question and don't use it if you don't want the answer. Okay? Here it is. Just write the question down. Is there anything that I do or say that makes you feel unsafe, intimidated, or threatened? I'm going to repeat it. Is there anything that I do or say that makes you feel unsafe, intimidated, or or threatened. Now you have the question. Here comes the courage. Do you have the courage, husbands, to ask your wives that question? Wives, do you have the courage to ask your husbands that question? Mom and dad, are you strong enough to give the question to your children and have them ask the question back to you? Do you see how this could just radically alter our relationships. When we come to the understanding of what true, emotional, mature love looks like from a biblical perspective, it's a love that always, always protects. There's another quality I want you to write down this morning. Here's the second one. Emotionally mature love always trusts. It always trusts. So if we ask the question this morning, how trusting are we as people? I think immediately our response would be, well, we're Generally, pretty trusting. I think we believe the best in ourselves, we believe the best in others, and we want to express trust. And it's easy, it's quite easy to express that I'll be a trusting person, but it's different when you're put into a place of actually expressing trust. So, two sides to this there's the words when I say I am a trusting person, but then there's the action to put myself in a situation where trust is required. Now, there's a little demonstration I want you to look at here in a quick moment, and it's about a trust response. It's a trust fall. Some of you actually probably tried to do this. It's just a great way to talk about always trust. When you talk about trust, you need to look at what we're called to do, that emotionally mature love always trusts. So the question is, do we trust beyond our words? Do our actions really step into the words of trust? And do we back it up? Practical tests this morning. Just talk about it this way, mom and dad, when your kids are at the age that they want to drive, and they come up to you and they go, mom, dad, do you trust me? And mom and dad go, sure, we trust you. And then they go, can I have the keys to the new car? Well, we all laugh because we know, I trust you, but not quite that much. So how does that translate then <clears throat> Excuse me, over into our world of relationships? Do we trust in the area of our relationships to the same degree. Here's what we know about trust. According to Paul and the Bible, it says that trust will not keep any records of wrong. We don't keep a running telly or a list of mistakes. We don't keep track of every failure or every stumble or every disappointment that someone makes. And yet we find that people that do this. We find that it's easy to go back and to remember in our relationships. I mean, I did this when I was first married to Laura. You know, if there was a mistake or a disagreement or an argument, or we just, you know, we were sort of negotiating through our early part of our marriage together, and then we get later on, and I go, well, you know, you used to, or you did, and as soon as you do that, you're actually demonstrating. I was actually demonstrating that I wasn't emotionally mature with my trust, that I was going backwards into something that shouldn't be brought forward, that we dealt with that. But have you ever noticed when we get into conflict, what do we do? We dig back. We go back and we actually violate what we're doing when we do this is we're actually going back to kindergarten. We're going to emotional kindergarten. We're going, I want to go back and I want to talk about how you let me down. And yet Paul said to these Corinthian believers, he goes, you need to move this way. You need to move ahead. You need to grow up in your emotional love to become mature. Trust is a disposition of heart and spirit that chooses to believe in and believe the best of another person. I'll repeat that. Trust is a disposition of the heart and spirit that chooses to believe in and believe the best of another person. Emotionally mature love will always trust. Now, this is not an excuse or permission to be gullible, to be easily uh, deceived, or to put yourself back into vulnerable uh, situations, but it is the opportunity to live with the Spirit's empowerment, a capacity of love that will transform the very nature of your relationships. Make it practical. David, we all know David for his aspirations and his great leadership. If you're new to the Bible, David was king of Israel. Before he was king, King Saul ruled over the nation of Israel. Now, according to the monarchy, the king and his son, his oldest son, would be heir to the throne. So when King Saul was leading Israel, Jonathan would be the natural one that would ascend to the throne. King Saul disappointed God, and God said, Saul, you're... Your kingship's out. I'm going to replace you. In fact, his dynasty would be removed. It would be a new family. It would be brought in. And it happened to be that David was the one that God would select. Now, in the story, reading the story, we always go to the high points, but sometimes we miss sort of the emotional solid points that come together. David and Saul's son, Jonathan, forge an incredible relationship. See, David shows up on the scene when Israel has this national enemy, And David becomes victorious over Goliath, and he's Israel's rising star. I mean, he can do no wrong. He's like the great next leader. So everybody's celebrating David, and Saul, the current king, gets very envious and jealous. And he notices that David and Jonathan have this friendship relationship going on, and he lets that carry on. One day, David is in playing music before Saul, and that was part of what he was called to do. And he would perform music and soothe the spirit of the king, a very talented musician. And Saul's anger rose up, and he grabs a spear, and he hurls it at David, nearly pins him to the wall, and David flees for his life. When David meets up with Jonathan, King Saul's son, he has a choice to make. Do I reveal to Jonathan the true character of his father? Because this man is second in line. Like he's next in line to the throne. All he has to do is kill me and I'm out. Do I reveal to Jonathan the true nature of his dad or do I just keep quiet? And David makes a decision. Very interesting. Emotionally mature love. He trusts that this friend can bear the weight of the information he's going to give him and that the outcome will be positive. So he tells Jonathan, Jonathan, We're friends, right? And Jonathan goes, yeah. Jonathan, we have a one-spirit relationship. We have a one-spirit relationship, David. Jonathan, can I be honest with you? David, you know you can tell me anything. Jonathan, your dad tried to kill me. Jonathan goes, no way. My dad wouldn't do that to you. David goes, I was there. Your dad tried to kill me. No, my dad loves you. You're the hero. You're Israel's rising star. He's riding on your coattails. I mean, you're the one that makes his dynasty look good right now. My dad wouldn't do that to you. Jonathan, your dad tried to kill me. So as they have this little conversation, David says to Jonathan, here's a way that I can prove this to you. So again, puts himself in risk. He goes, Jonathan, there's a celebration coming up and I'm supposed to be there with the king at the king's table. It's going to last a couple of days. I want you to tell your dad, I'm not going to be there. I want you to tell your dad that I needed to go back to my family home and I'm unable to join him at the celebration. And you tell me what happens, whether your dad goes, oh, okay, and he releases me, or if your dad becomes extremely angry and agitated. Jonathan goes, Okay, that's, that's a fair trade. So Jonathan doesn't tell his dad. Interesting. doesn't tell the king. He goes back. The first day of celebration, King Saul says to his son Jonathan, he goes, Hey, where's David? Well, he had to go back to his family. He's not able to be here. And Saul goes, All right. Day number two. Hey, Jonathan, where is David? And Jonathan says, Well, I told you, he had to go back to his family, and when Jonathan explained what David did, Saul grabs his spear and hurls it at his own son. And in that moment, Jonathan knew David had trusted him with an incredible loyalty and an allegiance. See, emotionally mature love is risky, but it risks because it trusts and it's willing to believe the best in and the best of others. If you look in your notes, I want you to show you just the dynamic these two had. First Samuel 18, verse 1. It said, after David had finished talking with Saul, here's the guts of it right now. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as he loved himself. See, that's what it is to have a love that trusts, that you actually love the other person enough that it is yourself that you're loving. And this power that begins to be released into our relationships transforms everything that we want. Trust is a disposition of the heart and spirit that chooses to believe the best in and the best of another person. Well, let's talk about the third attribute this morning. Paul's writing to these believers, and he goes, let's get you out of kindergarten. Emotionally mature love always hopes. It always hopes. This is that looking forward. It's not based upon past failure. It's looking at God's grace and understanding that even when, get this, when trust has been broken, that you can look towards the future and go, there's still a redeeming moment that comes. See, our tendency is if somebody breaks our trust, that we want to write them off. Now, we might give them one or two times. In fact, what did Peter come to Jesus? How many times do I forgive somebody? He went up to the nature of the law. Can I go up to seven? And Jesus goes, how about 70 times seven? So he expands it into this infinite list because Jesus knew something about our human nature. Our human nature is we want to know when I can write the person off. When can I just go, I'm done. I'm so done with this. Yet Jesus goes, no, you can never wash your hands of this because you are an expression and the Spirit's expression of love through you is a demonstration of the Father's love towards you. So emotionally mature love always hopes. That means even when trust has been broken, there's this ability to see that God still has the potential to redeem a life for significance beyond failure. And I think everybody of us, everybody in this room, everybody listening to me right now goes, thank God that he believes that about us today, right? So here's a story. Jesus, on the night that he was to be betrayed, he's with his closest followers and he goes to Peter. And they had a great relationship And he said, "Peter, I've been praying for you." And you imagine how shocked Peter would have been on that moment. Why are you praying for me? And he said, "Peter, I've been praying for you because Satan, the enemy of our soul, he wants to sift you." And Peter immediately goes, "Whoa, no, 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 Jesus! Hey, I'm, I'm. You got, I'm with you. You got my loyalty, my allegiance. I got your back. You know, I got your back. I will go wherever you need me to go." And Jesus goes, "Peter, before the rooster crows." This very night before the rooster crows, three times you're going to deny me. And Peter goes, no, I will die for you. I will never sell you out. Now, we all know the story. And that's a night that has lived on in infamy because that's the night that Peter would betray Jesus three times, deny knowing him. And that sorrow and that grief would crush his soul and spirit. Jesus was crucified. He was resurrected by the power of God. And following his resurrection in those 40 days that he spent here, one of the days that he had, he was up in the area of Galilee. He was walking along the seashore, and Peter was up there, and he goes, hey, Peter, come, let's go for a walk. And that would have been an incredible moment, two of them walking along the beach together, and Jesus turns towards his friend and he goes, Peter, do you love me? And Peter would look back at Jesus and goes, well, you know I love you. And he goes, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Three times, Peter, do you love me? Now, we look at this, and rightly so, a context of restoration, of putting Peter back into his role of leadership and what he's going to do as an apostle for the church, and it's a powerful moment. But could it be that Jesus was also reaching back and Peter would recall an evening where he said, I've prayed for you. And even though what's about to happen will be extremely disappointing because you're going to sell me out, my love for you always hopes in the best that I believe, Peter, you will prevail even through this and on the other side. That even though you might break trust on the other side, I have a love that always hopes, and there's going to be a moment. Peter, do you love me? And Peter goes, Lord, I love you. Friends, that's a picture of love that hopes. And just maybe it's in your notes there. Maybe that's why Peter could say these words in First Peter four, verse eight, where he goes, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude. Of sins. Could it be that when Peter was writing these words, he wasn't merely projecting into a group of people something he needed to hear by the inspiration of the Spirit, but there was a little bit of personal recall going, If God could cover all of my failures and disappointments and sin with a love that always hopes, then cannot we be people who emotionally, who have this emotionally mature love, would always hope and believe for the best in others? Isn't that great? That when you walk up to somebody and you look them in the eyes, that your first inclination isn't going to be to look toward the fault meter. You're going to look towards the faith meter. You're going to look at them not in where they were disappointing, but where they can grow and develop and what they can become. Every one of us, don't miss this, every one of us has the potential for significance Not merely in what we will attain in life, but in the fact that we can become the kind of person that God has created us to be, that his love could be resident in our heart, that even though we broke trust, we can be redeemed and restored and brought back into grace with God and live lives of significance. And I want us to be people, as a church community, I want us to be people that always, always, always hopes for the best in the other person. And you might say to me, Doug, you don't know my marriage. You don't know my friendships. You don't know my family. Well, we all know our families. And, you know, you look at the people that are in our families, and it's so easy to dismiss them. But that's the thing about emotionally mature love. We choose to either move towards kindergarten or adulthood. And what Paul says and what the Bible says, choose to grow. Choose to grow. Be the people that are willing to look past this and go, I see you in this moment, but I see you beyond this moment. And that's what Jesus did with Peter, and that's what we need to do with each other. And it'll change the very nature of all of our relationships because when we hope, think about this, when we hope, hope is what buoys the heart of a parent that's waiting for a prodigal child to return home. Hope is what buoys the heart of a spouse when their partner breaks trust, confesses to unfaithfulness, and yet commits to restoration. And hope is what buoys the hearts of friends when one of their own is caught up in addictions and disillusionment but they can see past that and see God has the power and through me I will love them with a love that will always trust always hope and it takes me to my next one and write it down love always perseveres always perseveres see this is what it is to be emotionally mature it's a love that says in the middle of the turmoil and disappointment because we're all going to have that People will let us down. Situations are going to let us down. Circumstances, I'm going to let you down. Other leaders are going to let you down. There's going to be moments that we'll do things that maybe didn't line up with what you wanted or hoped for. We're all going to experience that. You've let others down. It's part of who we are. But we're growing into becoming emotionally mature followers of Jesus who demonstrate a love that perseveres, always perseveres. This is a love that says, I will never give up. Even when situations and circumstances are dismaying and overwhelming, and quite honestly, I just want to throw in the towel, I will never give up. Now, perseverance. Perseverance is an incredible quality. How many of you would say you're great at persevering? If you're married, raise your hand. No, no, I'm just kidding. I think all of us would go, you know, I'm a pretty good perseverance kind of person. Now, I love telling you stories of my life, and probably I tell you way too much. But um, there's a particular story some of you know about this one. When I was growing up, my parents always wanted the best for us as kids, so they would always prepare good meals. Now, God gave me an incredible gift. I hate cooked turnips. That's my spiritual gift. I hate cooked turnips, and growing up, I just I could never eat them. But my parents were of sort of that generation that you eat whatever's put before you, and if it's food, then you eat the food. That's How many are with me so far? All right, good. We're tracking together. We're all in therapy, but we're good. We're going to track together on this one. So there was a day when my parents sat down, and we'd always, family meal was always together. Mom and dad and all the kids were always together. Great wheel, a great way to build a relationship. Mom was on my left. Dad was over here on my right. Kids were all seated around the table. They are all eating their meal, but I, I had left my turnips because they would served it up on my plate, and I went, oh, I don't know. That was part of the curse. It came in after, you know, the fall. And I just went, why would God do that to us? And so my mom said, you need to eat your turnips. You can't go until your plate is cleared. And I was like holding out. I was not, perseverance, right here. I was not giving in. And so eventually all my siblings are gone. They've finished their meals, they're off and running, and my mom and dad are sitting there, and they are dog-determined that Doug is going to eat those, you know, those cooked turnips. Now, mom had always tried everything. She had hidden them inside mashed potatoes. That's evil. You can taste that stuff. She coated it with brown sugar. That's also evil. Just give me the sugar and leave the turnips out. I would have been happy. But this day, it was pure cooked turnips. And so in that moment, they're going, you have to, you got to finish them. And I was supposed to go out to Cubs. And they said, you can't go till you eat them. So I just sat there, just absolutely determined, persevering. I'm not going to do this. So finally, you know, they are my parents, and they're bigger than I was. They said, take a forkful. So I did what most of us did when we took cod liver pills, right? I put it on the fork, I get my glass of water. You put it in as a whole thing. Don't taste it yet. And you fill your mouth with, you guys with me? Yeah, you fill your mouth with water. And some of you are taking notes. Oh, that's how you do this. And you fill your mouth with water. And then you try to swallow, hoping that the turnips are surrounded in this whole swirl of water. And your gag reflexes. Like you just, you almost die. I'm in convulsions trying to get, and they go, oh, stop that. It's not that bad. I go, yes, it is. And I put my fork down. And finally, finally they went, oh, just go. Get out of here. And I went, yes, God has given me the gift of perseverance. It's a wonderful thing. Now, we have great memories. We laugh today about that story. But you know how good God is? God gave me a wife who hates turnips as well. All good things come to those who wait. What does that have to do with emotionally mature love? I have no idea. Actually, I do. Here's why I tell you that story. Because a lot of times when it comes to love, we sometimes interpret perseverance in the same manner that I did with my turnips. That I'll persevere in spite of how unbearable or difficult the situation is. That I'll persevere even though my boss is insufferable. I'll persevere even though my spouse is difficult. I'll persevere even though my parents are intolerable. And even many well-meaning Christians choose to do this with their marriages. They go, I'm going to persevere even though this marriage is terrible because it's what God intends. Now, that's great in that expression, but did you know that that's not exactly the ideal that God was looking for? God wasn't saying, I want you to persevere in the middle of an awful marriage. Let me reinterpret this properly for you. Here's what we do discover. God doesn't command us to be committed to staying married. That's far too easy. Any one of us can just like bear and grit through and survive to the end. Here's what God requires us. He wants you and me. He wants us to be committed to expressing love that always perseveres. See the difference? God doesn't say, I want you to persevere through. He goes, I want you to persevere in your love. I want you to express love to your spouse in spite of how difficult it is. I want you to express love to your boss in spite of how terrible they are. I want you to express love to your brother and sister even though they are the most terrible people that God could ever create. No, they're not. I want you to persevere not in the midst of the situation, in your love. In your love. Do you see how that changes relationships? Because it's easier to make it an object and go, I can't deal with that, and it's just awful, it's terrible, and it's done. And God said, no, 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 no. Emotionally mature love is a love that always perseveres. That when my spouse is demeaning, I choose to love them and pray for them, and I will not rally and rise up and resist. That when my boss is difficult, I will choose to be strong. I will express love, whether it's my spouse, my family, my friends, my co-workers. 1 Corinthians is in your notes, uh, chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. It says, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And here it is. Do everything in. Wow. Love. Now remember, this is a letter to people who are still sort of vacillating around emotional kindergarten. And Paul says, I want you to do everything in love. Grow, grow, grow. And that's how we become emotionally, spiritual, vital followers of Jesus Christ. Love, love always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. And did you know that God loved you so much that that's the kind of love that he has for us? that even though our actions, our choices, and even our sin put us in enmity with God, that God says, in spite of all of that, my love, my love always protects, my love always trusts, my love always hopes, and my love always perseveres. Here it is, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You look at that little statement. While we were still sinners, while we were unlovable, while well, everything about our situation would have been something that any one of us would have put up the shield, self-protect, self-preservation, push back against, God says, no, 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 no. I'll even send my son so that you can experience the full measure of my love. And he'll die for you. He'll pay the penalty for your wrong choices, your mistakes. He'll rise to new life so that you can have my spirit so you don't have to live that way anymore. But you can actually love as an emotional adult. And, friends, that's the call for all of us. Now, some of, you, some of you today, you've never, maybe never even accepted Jesus. You've never said yes to his grace. And you can do that. We don't even have to have our eyes closed and pray. You can do that right now while I'm talking. You can just go, Jesus, I recognize my wrong choices, my mistakes, my failures. I realize you are the Son of God, and I choose you to be Lord of my life. Would you transform me with your grace? And the Bible says he'll do that. We call that saying yes saying yes to Jesus. But then out of that, he gives us the capacity. He says he gives us his spirit, and now he's given capacity to grow. But don't stop. Grow and become emotionally mature. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, this morning, so much, so much for us to learn and to grow and to share with one another. I pray that you would remind us through this week as we leave this place that we would be people who choose to intentionally develop in this area of emotionally mature love, that we wouldn't be the ones that use conceit and pride, but we would lay our own rights down and honor other people. I also pray for those that maybe for the very first time are realizing that that relationship with you is a possibility. Maybe they never knew it before, but that even today, in this moment, the God of the universe that gives them the greatest expression of love extends it to them right now. And as your eyes are closed, just in a moment of prayer, if you're in this room or you're listening to my voice, you're in the other venues over in the chapel, if you've never said yes to Jesus before, you've never invited Jesus to be your Lord, your Savior, and today you just want to do that before I close in prayer, finish my prayer, would you just quickly raise a hand anywhere in this room? And I'll just close you out in my prayer and just we'll be praying with you. So anywhere in this room, just hold it up high enough until I can see it and I'll just acknowledge that. And we'll just pray along with you this morning. Thank you. Anyone else this morning? Yes, thank you. Anyone else today? Just, today's the day just to say yes to Jesus. Father, help me grow in his grace. So, Lord, I thank you. You see our hearts. You see the hands that have responded, and we're going to do our best as a church community to walk together, grow as followers of Christ. But now would you also help us to live to the way you created us to be. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said...